right, hello everybody and welcome to the AI at Work podcast. I am Rob May, uh, general partner at PJC, uh, and I focus on AI investing for PJC. So this season is all about AI and machine learning companies that went through Y Combinator. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to uh, have um, Gordon Wilson from Rain Neuromorphics, uh, which went through YC. What class did you guys go through YC? Summer 2018. Summer 2018. Great. So, um, so this is a super interesting company that builds a neuromorphic chip for AI, and so I'm very excited to have uh, have Gordon tell you about. It. So, Gordon, uh, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Rob. I'm super excited to uh, be sharing more with you uh, now in this podcast format. I know we've obviously had a lot of conversations over the past uh, year uh, since you became an investor in Rain. Uh, but yeah, we're you know we are a hardware hardware company that builds brain inspired processors for artificial intelligence, and you know neuromorphic chips are a very very exciting frontier. Um, AI hardware is a massive massive point of interest in the artificial intelligence world today because really AI is fundamentally hardware limited. You know right. we there are so many things we would like to do, uh, but the neural networks that we're building today are just so expensive and so massive that we are limited in where we can put them and kind of how big we can make them. So our neuromorphic chip is seeking to help make that a little bit more affordable so we can put AI everywhere. Yeah, and so what's, what I found interesting when I invested in Rain was that uh, you guys are actually solving several really, really interesting problems. Um, mm -hmm. Number one, you have these yep. memorist of nanowires, which yep. are a new invention. Mm -hmm. um, you know, number two, you are laying them down on the chip stochastically. Yes, uh, which is which is an invention. Let Let's start with the um, <laughs> Let's start with the nanowires. Tell me a little bit about that innovation and where it came from. And for for somebody who doesn't understand what a memristor is and, and all that, like what what does that mean? Yeah, so the memristor is a key uh, element of our technology, and memristor stands for memory resistor. It's a lot like a regular resistor, and a resistor is just a component, electrical component that if you push charge through it, it resists the amount of charge that it can be transferred through that uh, component. But a memory resistor is a resistor that can change. So you can change its resistance up and down. The reason why this matters is because this means the memristor can be the ideal artificial synapse. If you have a high resistance, it's a weak synaptic connection. And if you have a low resistance, it's a strong synaptic connection. And it's been widely heralded in the world of emerging memory and neuromorphics as kind of this perfect device. But the problem is that the way people build these onto chips today, you can't really build big neural networks with these memoristic devices. So that's where our nanowires come in, these new types of memristor wires. You know, we were not the first team to ever build memristors, but we are the first team to imagine this method of, uh, of, of scaling. So the, the wires themselves are basically just long, really, really long, really, really thin wires that then have a coating. And that coating allows the formation of these memristors through the shell. And as a result, we can throw them down onto the chip and stack them up so we can have a whole lot more in the same amount of area than you would in another type of chip. And as you said, stochastically, randomly, we, we place these chips, or sorry, we place these wires completely randomly uh, on top of the chip. So we're the first chip in semiconductor history that is randomly connecting functional components. But that's a really important piece for us because 
part one of the products of this random deposition is you actually have a really really remarkable uh, pattern that emerges. So you know, folks who are kind of deep into math, uh, you know, who have studied randomness, you know, might appreciate this kind of elegance. But you know, in very sort of over oversimplified terms, when we deposit these wires randomly, you actually get a topology that mirrors what you observe in the brain. And it means it's a very well-connected network, uh, even though it is very, very large on the chip itself. Yeah. So to clarify a couple of points there for, for some of you that, that aren't sort of hardware people, um, you know, first of all, topology is sort of the structure of the way these things are connected. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Gordon talks about, you know, memristors, the, the example that I give people sometimes is imagine a pipe and as water flows through the pipe yep. in a single direction for a longer period of time, the pipe grows and more water can flow through it. So not only does it impact how much, uh, you, you know, charge you can you can pass, but it also effectively sort of holds a, a history of um, what's been done in the past based on the right. size of the pipe, right? You Absolutely. can sort of tell. Yeah. Um, so that's that's so that's kind of interesting. Uh, and so so talk about the need for this, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. obviously we've we've all heard sort of AI workloads or or to run the biggest models are sort of doubling every three to four months. Yep. Yep. Um, and you know GPUs are obviously a huge improvement, but they're having a hard time keeping up. Uh, you, you know, what, what is unique about Rain's approach from the perspective of how it performs? Right, yeah, great question, Rob. And yeah, the amount of compute that is necessary to run these models is growing at an exponential curve. You know, that's almost becoming kind of a, a, a truism, you know, that we're hearing again and again in the AI hardware world. Um, and the, the issue with the existing hardware today is that in most cases, you know, they're relying on incremental improvements along one technical roadmap. And that's basically relying on Moore's law. So scaling features, making, you know, the transistors smaller, the resistors smaller, so you can incrementally fit just more stuff onto your chip. Um, and then you have a whole host of startups and NVIDIA is also kind of on this path that are just taking one of, or several of incremental innovations like many more cores on the chip or lower precision cores uh, or what's called data flow optimization, i.e. breaking up the neural network into multiple pieces and allocating one part of the network to a dedicated part of the chip. But with all of those approaches, whether it's NVIDIA building the GPUs or, you know, GraphCore, Cerebras, Grok, Samba Nova building variations of that, they're really only promising kind of, in some cases, 2x improvement, 5x improvement. You know, I think GraphCore has promised at best they'll get 50x improvement, but we are five orders of magnitude away from the performance that is comparable to the brain with these artificial neural networks. So the way we see this, that we think that those approaches, that roadmap, is not going to be sufficient to really support the types of applications we want to see in the future. So what we're doing is a very, very different approach, very unorthodox, you know, relative to the way people are building hardware right now. Yeah. But we think that's necessary, you know, to kind of support those future applications. So like our first hardware that we want to bring to market will be operating about a hundred times faster and using about a hundred times less energy than a V100 GPU for those same operations. Uh, and I think that's what you have to do today. You know, you, we can't rely on these small incremental improvements. We have to have a step change. And that can only come with some really radical innovations. 
Yeah, I mean, when I, I so I was at the AI Hardware Summit um, a couple of months ago when you presented, and I always judge how interesting the presentations are where people hold up their phones and take pictures of slides, <laughs> even yeah. though slides are usually available online. Yeah. Um, and I think your presentation had the most uh, <laughs> cell phones taking pictures of it. And I, I think the general consensus of the group uh, was split between people who thought you were brilliant and people who thought you were crazy. So, um, <laughs> well, that's a good place approach. to be in, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like if you, you if you look back in history, you know, the people with uh, with the most radical ideas that really change things. You know, there were a lot of people calling them out for being crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, there. But but I don't know. It's over the last few years. It's been just this awesome journey of definitely being contrarian uh, and you know trying to bring a different point of view to Silicon Valley. Uh, and not everyone believes it at first, you know, yeah. but like since then we've been able to, I mean, we have folks like Sam Altman is our biggest investor, the CEO yeah. of OpenAI. We get to work closely with OpenAI now collaborating on building you know, the future models. Uh, we have the guy who commercialized GPS chips uh, yeah. back in the 90s and was the CEO of the world's second largest foundry join our board at the seed stage. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, there will always be naysayers, uh, but it's been really cool to see, to just kind of build distraction and get some of these really uh, big folks on board. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. And so, and so I think I can summarize, you know, your, your presentations that I've seen on rain as um, the, the two, there are two major approaches right now in AI hardware. Right. One scales poorly with, um, with time and mm -hmm. the other scales poorly with space. Exactly. And this sort of like stochastic trace memoristive nanowire approach that you guys have mm -hmm. uh, allows you to um, allows you to scale linearly with both. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's that's really really unique. Yep. Um, so so it's pretty exciting. And and the other thing that's interesting is like. You don't have a background that predicted <laughs> that you would be here. You went to University of Florida, yep, did yep. a bunch of random stuff, uh -huh. somehow got hooked up with Jack, and, <laughs> and, and then moved in and went to YC. Tell, t tell us about like your, your background and how you guys got to YC. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, I, I jokingly say sometimes that I'm the least likely semiconductor CEO in Silicon Valley. Uh, and you know, it's, it definitely has, has proven to be a, a really fun and um, kind of unexpected journey along the way. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of my story is that I actually had a, first had a, a, sh a short career in politics. Uh, so I did campaign field work, I managed a campaign, um, and I was working in that field. But while I was there, this was the time that, you know, data science and uh, statistics were dramatically changing that, the way people built uh, campaigns, the way they ran campaigns. You know, you could take these models that would have all of these dimensions of voters and they, we could generate, you know, very specific scripts, i.e. to persuade this person, uh, this is what we want to say to them uh, and how we can, given given the, the context of, of, of how old they are uh, and various other factors. Um, <clears throat> but since then, so after my kind of job, my short career in politics and political campaigns, um, you know, I, I became so enthralled with the way statistics was changing that, and data science in particular, that I wanted to go back and study math. Uh, and so I could become kind of a full-time dedicated data scientist. And that was when I went to the University of Florida. So it was there at UF. Um, I actually joined a data science student group um, that had just been founded, I think, like a semester before, uh, and where I met Jack. So for the listener, Jack is our CTO uh, and also the kind of the mastermind inventor uh, behind all of our core technologies. And he was still a student at UF at the time, uh, the president of that student group. Um, I ended up becoming president of that student group immediately following him. 
And it was honestly this incredible journey because like, and it, it almost mirrors kind of what happened with the company because he started the student group, like he built kind of the, the minimum viable idea product with these like workshops to teach people about Python and neural networks. Right. And then I kind of scaled it and it actually became over the course of a year, like one of the largest student organizations at UF. You know, we were operating you know, 15 workshops uh, a semester, you know, hundreds of kids would come because they wanted to learn Python. And we wanted to, like, de to democratize the access to learning about uh, neural networks. So, you know, it, that was a, a fun experience to get to work with Jack at that time. And as we got to know each other, he told me about these inventions uh, that he'd been working on. Uh, so Jack had been working in the laboratory of our third co-founder, who is a professor of material science at UF, uh, Juan Nino. And Jack kind of brought in this idea of a neuromorphic chip utilizing these materials, which are memristors. And um, yeah, it was there at UF that Jack had his aha moment uh, where he conceived of this nanowire, random nanowire architecture. And then we kind of took it from there at, at Florida. And uh, the, the first, it was, it was funny, the, the first, uh, the way the company really kind of got off the ground, a group of investors actually reached out they saw the patent and they're like, this is really cool. That doesn't usually happen. Uh, I think yeah. that's a rare starting it's story. Very rare, yeah. Um, and then like kind of with those, I was like, you know, Jack, uh, you know, realized he wanted a partner on the team who could yeah. kind of drive the business side and strategy side so he could really focus on invention. Yeah. Uh, and he asked me to, to join on board. Yeah. So, so you went from, so activism took you into data science yes. to be better at that. Yes. You got the interest in data science just in and of its own, which took you into uh, hardware. Exactly. And it makes sense because to raise money and to drive a story and evangelize something new yes. is a very similar process to trying to evangelize change in politics, right? Absolutely. You have to persuade people. You have to deal with people that disagree with you and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely, it's a really good background for this. Yeah. I mean, it's messaging is so critical, you know, and I think that so many other hard tech founders would be better off if they put more thought into strategic messaging. You know, like the way your, the, the way the idea exists and that message is in your mind is not the same way that it is necessarily going to be received, you know, in the mind of a customer or an investor. And you have to frame your message given the context of the recipient. Right. You know, this is something that is so obvious within the world of politics, you know, that it's all about framing and targeting and persuasion. But it's something that I think a lot of deeply technical people, you know, they, they, they want the technology to stand for itself, you know, and just to be self-evident. and. You've got to you got to frame it the right way. So it's definitely given me, I think, uh, a really unique perspective and approach uh, that I think is actually working out pretty well. Yeah, that's that that's great. And so, and how's the transition been to startup CEO? Because like yeah. I'll I'll tell the story. You know, people hear about the things that you have to do to make a startup successful. And you know, you and I met. Uh, on Halloween, you were supposed to go to a Halloween party, right? Which you now had to delay because you had a little bit of money left in your round, and we might yeah. take it. And my, my partner Todd and I actually ended up doing it. But you know, you had to meet us for dinner and be delayed your Halloween party. You, you basically had to, uh, you know, had to work a little late, and yeah. uh, and that's that's part of the job sometimes in this. Absolutely. And so, how how has that transition been for you? You know, it's it's honestly been easier than I thought it would be. You know, yeah. surprisingly, um, you know, I, I grew up in a family actually where there were a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, my dad actually started a software company. My mom um, has her own law practice. Both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs in their own very unique right. Like one of my grandfathers, my mom's dad opened up a, uh, 
uh, a an art school in Florence. So he's a very audacious guy who thought wow. he could teach the Florentines in the seventies how to do <laughs> art. You know, uh, and my other grandfather brought soft serve ice cream to sub-Saharan Africa. So he opened up ice cream shops in South wow. Africa. Anyway, so so I mean, the idea of being an entrepreneur had always kind of been in my mind, and I always knew I wanted to, in some sense, strike it on my own and kind of build something for myself. Um, but I'll be honest. I mean, the transition to becoming like a deep tech kind of hard tech CEO um, was not, it, it was with its real challenges, you know, because there was such a steep learning curve to kind of understand all the different languages that people speak. You know, we are not just, you know, an AI company, but we're an AI chip company. So you need to understand the algorithms and the way people program deep learning. You need to understand the cycles of tape outs with uh, semiconductor foundries and all the limitations and processes there. And then we're also doing materials research. So we have all of these layers of complexity. And, you know, I'll admit that first year when we were in Gainesville and I would fly out uh, to Silicon Valley, I had many conversations constantly where I was just felt like, oh my gosh, I am probably in over my head, but you know, I'll just, you got to keep going. Right. And I think it was that determination and willingness to just like, you know, even if I, I walked into a conversation and I was like, well, that person probably doesn't think I'm that smart because I didn't have that, you know, obvious answer to something that an industry veteran would know. Um, I just tried to keep learning, you know, take notes. Yeah, and so what was the YC experience like for you guys? Because I think when people think of Y Combinator, they think of mantras like, well, just don't die, <laughs> you know, get ramen profitable, yep. build a minimum viable product. Uh, that's a little harder with what you guys are doing. So, so w what did you take from the experience? Were there still lessons for a chip company that were valuable? And, you know, did you, did you feel like you were just very different than the other companies that were going through there? Did you feel like you were similar? What, what was it like? Yeah, it's... It was, there, there, that's a great question. Uh, and I think there, there were still, pause for a second. So there are definitely lessons, you know, that we learned uh, being part of Y Combinator that I think would be applicable to any company. And, but at the same time, there was, it was a bit challenging because we were the only semiconductor company in our batch and one of only a handful that have ever gone through YC. But there are, there, as I said, there are some lessons that are just universal to startups and that Y Combinator helps, helps you out no matter what. You know, one of which is just building a rapid and iterative feedback loop between customer feedback and product development. You know, one thing that they say, you know, that one of the YC mottos is build thing, build something people want. And that really means you need to be constantly tapped into customer needs and understanding what folks need. Uh, what, what we found quickly was that we were building hardware that a lot of people didn't even realize they needed because we were building yeah. this for models that we're expecting to appear in the future, which made this even yeah. challenging in a way. But we were really lucky that we have been able to partner and work with OpenAI who does who is looking uh, very far into the future and in these types of future future models um, but other things I mean YC like one of the great advantages of YC is just the sheer volume and breadth of the network you know you have all types of people you know that have built all types of companies and they are really really supportive and willing to help help each other out 
And they also do have a hardware partner there. So Eric Migakovsky uh, was the founder of Pebble, so the world's first smartwatch. And he could definitely help us out kind of understanding hardware cycles and some of the, the, the challenges there. But, um, but you're right. I mean, some companies go through YC and they're just about like really rapid growth. How many users can they get by demo day? And then they want to like blast off with, uh, with fundraising. You know, for us, it was more about hiring and LOIs. Right. Yeah. How has hiring been for such a unique idea? Like you guys have put together a pretty talented team, at least it seems like from the people that I've met. Mm -hmm. um, has there been a lot of resistance? Have a lot of people said no? Or have people been, when they understand it, like jumped at the chance to work on this? Yeah, that's a great question. And the, the funny thing is I have actually surprised myself, I'll say. And I mean, not, not to, to, to brag, but well, I guess I, I will brag about our team because I think they're, they're really awesome. Um, the, the fact is, Sam Altman has said this, uh, it's easier to get people, to get smart people to work on a really hard problem than it is to work on an easy one. And, you know, we are hardware that is not like a small tweak of the status quo. We are reimagining the way this should all work. So when I, we would find people like, you know, engineers at NVIDIA or Synopsys or HP, you know, this was so different and so exciting that it was easier than I thought it would be to recruit them to the team. And, you know, one thing that I found with recruiting really, really smart people is, you know, you want them to be excited, you want them to be kind of aligned. And if you can build something that is mission driven, that is both stimulating and exciting for these folks, like they will be very eager to jump. Um, and, and that's been the case. Like we've had several key members of our team. This was the first career change that they've ever made. You know, in some cases they were at companies for over a decade, yeah. you know, de focusing on this, on, on, on something very specific. And now they're, you know, joining our team to, uh, to make this their life's work. Yeah. And so for a lot of our listeners who are probably, you know, think a lot about AI software, when you build hardware, you build towards a different set of targets, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, maybe the equivalent of when you think of software user experience, right? The equivalent of hardware are things like, you know, the, the people that are buying it, they care about um, power consumption for some use right. cases, but not for all, right? right? They care about the footprint of the chip. How yep. big is it? How much space does it take up on their device, right? Um, you know, they compare about, they care about how do you program it, right? Does it work with their existing tool sets or do they need new stuff? Um, you know, they care in some cases about the heat that it throws off, right? Because you might have a small constrained place where you're going to exacerbate that problem. Um, they care about the speed. Uh, for AI chips, they care about, you know, did, 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 can they do training? Can they do inference? Can they do both? You know, which is it? And, and so what, you know, when you think about rain and where you guys are going, what, what are you targeting across those yeah. dimensions? Where are you targeting to be strong and, and where are you sort of conceding? Absolutely. So in the long term, you know, we think that our hardware can be a platform to support AI, you know, from the data center all the way down to IoT devices. Uh, but that is not a viable strategy to go to market, right? right. right. You know, so you can't, you can't solve all, you can't boil the ocean and solve all the problems at once. Right. Uh, but one of the critical advantages uh, that our hardware has is the capacity to scale to support very, very large uh, neural network layers which directly corresponds to like a big matrix multiplication. And so what we found is this is a critical pain point for people that are building like the biggest models. You know, these would be things like natural language processing, generative models, reinforcement learning. And so we're now 
you know, our go-to-market strategy is just about building a, a PCIe card, so a coprocessor card that does this one function and does it really, really, really well. And I think that actually puts us at a really great advantage over some of these other hardware companies because other folks are incrementally innovating and asking people to move over their entire hardware and software stack, you right. know, just so people can get a 10x, 20x improvement. We're saying okay, we just want you to offload this one really expensive thing and we're gonna do it 100x better in yeah. two dimensions, speed and energy. So, you know, we're not, you know, at, at first we're not go trying to compete with like the ultra low power devices like right. the Mythic chips, you know, or the Sentient chips because, you know, our new manufacturing process will mean the chips will be a little bit more expensive. Uh, but, you know, in the data center, people will spend whatever they need to get to the performance that they want. So that's kind of how we see that, that we can support these really big neural network layers and make those massive models cheaper to deploy. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and when, you, when, you, when you mentioned the sort of the cost of some of your chips, um, one of the interesting things about AI, I, I, some of the chips are much more complex in, in a lot of different ways, but, um, but there's some benefit that you can use older semiconductor processes mm -hmm. sometimes. And talk Absolutely. a little bit about that. Why, why is that true? And, and, and you know, do you need to move to you know, seven nanometer? Or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so for those uh, listening at home, like the semiconductor process or the geometry uh, corresponds to like the size of the transistor that you're building on the chip. So when people say seven nanometer, it means they can put a, make a transistor that's seven nanometers in dimension. Um, and the reason why this is important is because this is what kind of scaling of Moore's law is all about. That people have expected that they could double the number of transistors every 18 months, and it's been relatively true and consistent over the last three decades. The problem now is that these small geometries, these nine nanometers, seven nanometers, they're super expensive, you know, to build the, what's called the masks to, to, to make these chips. And so for folks who are relying on digital hardware, like GPUs or CPUs, in order to, to maximize their performance, they need to be in these really small geometries and they need to spend a lot of money to manufacture those chips. So like, for example, a, a single tape out, which is kind of one batch of chips uh, in seven nanometer can cost on the order of $20 million or more. Um, so the nature of our chip, uh, the, the way we scale the neurons, these physical neurons on our chip, allows us to actually stay in really big geometries, that we can achieve the same type of performance without needing to have everything super, super small and compact. And without diving into all of kind of the technical reasons why, this basically just means that we can save a whole lot of money and iterate a lot faster on our, on our product you know, without, um, without spending uh, a huge amount on these tiny, on these small tape outs. So like our first chip that I'm holding right here, this is a, we call it Cumulus. It's 10,000 artificial neurons. Uh, so it's a 100 by 100 grid array. Uh, this was taped out in 180 nanometer. So super mature and super affordable. Um, you know, I know the other folks who are building digital hardware um, are, are spending, yeah, on the order of tens of millions of dollars to be in these seven nanometer uh, processes. Right. You have different types of risks than traditional chip companies, right, mm -hmm. who are pushing the limits of sort of size and, and, and things that can go wrong when you try to do things, uh, you know, at a, a smaller level, mm -hmm. um, whereas your risks are more functional and less about actually 
the production of the chip and and some of those things. Right. 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 So. Yeah. For sure. On that on that CMOS side. I mean, for us, we we'd still have. The, uh, you know, the, the nanowire layer is new, sure. uh, so that's kind of this post-CMOS process, uh, but we do not have to, we don't have those cost risks or the yield risks that people face when they're operating in those really small geometries. Gotcha. Um, so, so, so let's switch gears a little bit and let's, um, let's wrap up with a couple of um, ideas about you're sort of in the AI space, you're talking to a lot of people, yeah. you're at the bottom of the stack, you're talking about the hardware that's going to run some of this. And so I'm interested in some of your impressions of, of what's going on up the stack and, and things that you think about. Um, so so I, have, I have a bunch of investing theses um, around AI and uh, we'll talk about some of them and you can tell me if you think they're good theses or bad theses. All right, but, let's go. Um, the, the first would be uh, synthetic data. Mm -hmm. So the idea that um, you, know, you have a data set, uh, you're gonna generate derivations of that data set to feed into your model um, as a business idea. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that thesis. So one of the huge limiting factors for deep learning today uh, and AI broadly you know, is um, training data. And, right. you know, it's one one is compute, the cost of compute, the hardware, and the other is getting enough data to train these models. So people are trying to do a lot of different things, like build more data efficient algorithms. So things like few shot or single shot learning, uh, you may have heard of, like mm -hmm. teaching, an teaching a neural network how to do something by only showing it a few examples. Um, but another way that you can do this is by generating synthetic training data. And, you know, I would totally think that if people can generate that type of data uh, so that we can ultimately teach our neural networks, you know, faster and give them those data sets without having to aggregate them, you know, manually, uh, that would be a great investment. Because like right now, I mean, data labeling services are almost like these tightly guarded uh, 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 secrets for companies. Like I know, right. I, I know of companies that like they'll find this like data labeling service in Romania that's like really good for them and they don't want yeah. anyone else to know hey. because you know, this is how they're getting their precious training data, yeah. you know, and, you know, this can't be sustainable as we're continuing to grow neural networks. So either we need to make the models, you know, capable of learning with less data, or we need to generate the data another way. Sure. Um, so we've talked a lot about neural networks, um, which are dr the driving force in AI right now. And they obviously mm -hmm. have a very long life ahead of them for, for many decades as well. Um, but they have limitations. They have limitations around explainability. Yeah. Yep. Um, they do require a lot of data. Uh, and some things like that. Um, what do you see around non-neural network AI, mm. you know, evolutionary algorithms or yeah. probabilistic programming or symbolic logic processing? Do, right. you, do you ever talk about that and the future of RAIN or, or see anything in the, in the market in general? Yeah, so I would say at first we are ex extremely bullish about neural networks. You know, we are primarily building our hardware to support you know, deep neural networks and to make them not just deep, but also very wide so we can have the biggest neural networks ever. Uh, that said, you know, I think there's been to some extent, you know, a little bit of overemphasis on deep learning models for certain problems that don't need deep learning. You know, we find that there are a lot of cases where if you just have a good data set, you can apply like a logistic regression even and get some, you know, really good results that are pretty explainable. Um, but that said, I would say, I think that the problems that you articulated about deep learning are not things that are intractable, uh, things that, that deep learning won't be able to solve, or people won't be able to figure out how to make deep learning better. 
you know, explainability, for instance. Um, you know, we are working on one algorithm that would enable us, so we're the first people to develop an algorithm or to um, rather reduce to practice in hardware an algorithm that would enable us to train and run inference entirely in analog. And if you do that, yes, and if you do that, you actually are using physics to train and you can then use physics tools to analyze the neural network, which could dramatically improve explainability of neural networks. So this is one perspective we have on it, but basically I don't think that those problems you articulated are fundamental. I think that there are definitely ways to overcome them, but at the same time, you know, we should be looking at a breadth of AI solutions beyond neural networks. Sure. Um, so last question, then we'll wrap up. What, uh, what kind of person, you, you know, you guys are getting close to some of your first, uh, I assume sort of like reference design applications and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What kind of company do you think should reach out to Rain and say like, hey, we want to we wanna try your chips? What, what, yeah. what are you looking for in a customer? So that's a great question. I, I think one of the things that we're looking at, one of the, one of the application spaces that we are particularly bullish about uh, is natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is that these NLP models are just the biggest neural networks anyone's ever built, the most compute intensive, and therefore the types of models that our hardware would be able to most effectively address the cost. So you know, there are a lot of companies that are out there that have giant corpuses of text data you know, that they are just sitting on. And they do not have the computational ability to gain insights from that. You know, this could be anything from, you know, a massive retailer, you know, documenting all their customer complaints uh, to, I mean, insurance companies or, or what have you. Yeah. So I think anyone who has like these large unstructured bodies of text and they're looking to better understand how this new generation of natural language processing can give them value. You know, those are people I would really, really love to speak to. Interesting. Um, well, we're about out of time. So Gordon, thanks for being on the podcast today. Uh, and for those of you listening, thanks for listening. If you have questions you would like us to ask or guests you would like to see on the podcast, please send those to AI work at pjc.vc. And obviously if you, um, you know, if you're raising money for an AI company, uh, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to have you on the podcast. I'd love to look at investing. So, um, you can reach out to me at rob at pjc.vc. Thanks for listening.